Turn, if you would, to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. We finally made it to the eighth chapter, which, if you're not familiar with it, is probably one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Last week, we raced through chapter 7. The reason we raced through it was, first off, we wanted to get to chapter 8. And secondly, chapter 7 is a little uh, discouraging at times. You know, it deals with the fact that uh, I want to do what is right, but sometimes I don't. And sometimes I know what is wrong to do, and I go ahead and do it. And we had a discussion about the fact that there are some who want us to believe that chapter 7 is dealing with Paul's life before he became a believer. But I don't think that's true. I think Paul is recognizing, realizing that we as believers, as we walk through this life, as we go through this process of sanctification, struggle with sin. And if we're not struggling, it's probably because we've given up. Or we've died, one of the two. And so we get to the end of chapter 7, and Paul finally says, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this sin that is in my life? And so he ends with, Thanks be to God. This is verse 25 of chapter 7. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then he goes into chapter 8. And I promise you, we're not going to race through chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. The implication is very clear in that there was a time when there was condemnation. There was a time when all of us were being condemned because of our sin and our separation from God. If you flip back to John chapter 3, you remember verse 16, which is the one we always quote, but oftentimes we forget verse 17 and following. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We quote that one all the time. You see it at football games, basketball games, sign being held up, right? John 3:16. But keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to condemn us. <gasps> We're off the hook. Life is good, except, hmm, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It wasn't that Jesus came to condemn us. He came to save us because we were already condemned. Now, that's interesting because we don't like that. We've discussed that in here before. We like this idea that we're all nice, good people. We're all just kind of, you know, cruising along, doing our own thing, which is usually pretty good, pretty nice. So why would anybody condemn us? The rest of the passage that we're going to look at today is going to deal with that subject. 
We're going to compare and contrast the life that is lived according to the flesh and the life that is lived according to the Spirit. We're going to look at the differences between them. And what we're going to see in just a moment is that the life that is focused on the flesh does not, cannot, will not please God. It cannot happen. We, as unbelievers, stand condemned by a holy God. That's the bad news of the gospel. That's what we dealt with in the first half of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, where we ended up where Paul says, there is no one who seeks after righteousness. There's no one who does good. Everybody chases their own ways. We stood condemned, but now, but now there is no condemnation. That is the blessing of the entire book of Romans. You were condemned, but Christ has saved us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It might help you if you look at this word law and just think about principle, a principle of life. And there's two choices. We've seen this throughout the book. There's two choices. There is the principle that seeks what is sinful, and there is a principle of the Spirit. We have mentioned the Spirit in passing several times up to this point in the book, but really just in passing. We've been talking about justification. We've been talking about God declaring us to be righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We've been dealing with the process of sanctification, whereby we become what Christ has put in us, which is his righteousness. But we've kind of just hinted at what is the power that allows us to do that? What is the power that allows us to be sanctified, to work out Christ's righteousness in our everyday life? Is it me waking up in the morning, gritting my teeth, going, I'm going to do it today? No. It is the Spirit of God living in us. It is the law of the Spirit contrasted with the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, I think it's like 19 times, is going to mention the Spirit. The Spirit does this. The Spirit does that. The Spirit is the power through which we live the Christian life. End of story. We need to remember this because, you know, I've mentioned before, most of Paul's letters, you get to the halfway point, and you have half of it that's dealing with kind of the theology behind what he's dealing with, and then the second half of it deals with the application. This is that middle chapter, okay? From here on out, he's going to deal with the application. Well, sort of. He picks it up in chapter 12. There's a small digression in chapters 9, 10, and 11. We'll deal with that in a several weeks. In chapter 12, he's going to start dealing with, these are the things you're supposed to do. 
And if I forget to mention it on any given Sunday, always remember when he says, these are the things you're supposed to do, what he's really saying is, these are the things you're supposed to do by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Okay? After every one of them, love your neighbor in the, spirit of, in the Holy Spirit who's living in you. You know, love your enemies. Okay, you get the picture, right? It's all going to be the Spirit who has set us free from the law, the principle of sin and death. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember the discussion in chapter 6 where we talked about the fact that we were slaves to sin. We weren't just nice, free, autonomous individuals living our own life, doing our own things. We were slaves to sin, and we have been set free through the work of Jesus Christ. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law. We had a long discussion last week about the law. We've had discussions in every chapter of this book about the law. You get into the early part of the book and you start thinking, the law wasn't very good, okay? The law could only condemn me. It couldn't clean me up. And it must be the law's fault. No, it is not the law's fault. That was last week's lesson. The law is holy. The law is good. The law is righteous. There's no problem with the law. The law is the reflection of the righteous character of God. There was no problem with the law. There was a problem with you and me. There was a problem with us, and that problem was sin that kept us from following the law. It kept us from being righteous as God requires us to be. More on that in just a moment. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. At this point, we could have a whole long discussion about why God bothered with the law in the first place. Why did God give us the law? Because we needed to know that we couldn't do it. Remember back several chapters when he talked about the salvation of Abraham and the salvation of all of us and God doing it in such a way that there is no room for boasting on your part or my part? There's not a smidgen of room for you or I to say, see, I did this. And if you think there is, go look at the law and the law will say no. The law will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the summary, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, let's have a show of hands. How many of you have from the day you were born to the day you died, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How many of you have done that for one day? How many of you have done it for one hour in the last week? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. Last week's lesson, 
the things I want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. I keep on doing, oh, wretched man that I am. And we talked about that is the process of sanctification. And it sounds really depressing, okay? It sounds like we have to live in that world until the day we die. Let me let you in on a little secret. We can do what God wants us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Will we continue to sin? Yes. Do we have to continue to sin? No. Can we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do what God would have us to do? Yes. You see, sometimes we use chapter 7 as an excuse, not just as a reality check. We use it as an excuse. Well, why bother? with this holiness stuff. I'm going to sin anyway. I might as well enjoy it. Dive right in. Oh, wretched man that I am. Woohoo, let's have fun. No. Not only are we called to fight against sin, we are given the power to win the fight. Which brings you to the next question. Why don't we win the fight? We'll get to that in just a moment. And if we don't, we'll get to it in chapter 12. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. No problem with the law, all the problem with us. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Look at that word, likeness. Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that mean? He looked and was a human being. But since it says likeness, he was not a sinful human being. He looked just like you and me. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us he was tempted just like you and me, yet without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, To deal with sin. Why did Christ come? Did Christ come just to set an example of how a righteous man is supposed to live his life? Well, he did do that. We are to imitate Christ. But is that the only reason he came? I've mentioned to you before, I had a uh, professor one time, when she wasn't professoring, is that a word? When she wasn't uh, teaching, she was also preached over at the Universal Unitarian Church, okay? And her great heroes were Socrates and Jesus Christ. I mean, they both stood by their principles. They both died for their principles. Raw, raw, great people were Socrates and Christ and Confucius and you pick your favorite wise old person. Were they simply examples on how we ought to live our life? And the answer for at least Jesus is no. Jesus came to deal with the reality of sin in the world. He came to conquer it. You and I, sinful human beings, every one of us from the day we're born till the day we die, We as sinful human beings cannot enter the presence of a holy God. We cannot restore the relationship 
that Adam and Eve had before they sinned. Remember, it talks about Adam and God walking in the garden and having communion and fellowship. We cannot have that if we are sinful human beings. So Christ came to pay the penalty for sin and to restore the relationship with God. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. What are the righteous requirements of the law? Anybody want to take a guess? Come on, wake up. Hmm? The Ten Commandments? That's certainly part of it. Keeping it perfectly. What? All of it. Keeping all of it perfect. I mean, let's just go down to the Ten Commandments and start with a simple list. Okay? You can work your way down that. You know, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the law. Well, I've done that since the day I was born. Okay? Now, in case, in case you were worried that maybe you could do that, you know, we always have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes the external law and demonstrates that it's really a condition of the heart. And then we're in deep kimchi. Okay? You may not, at this point in your life, knowingly have murdered somebody. Okay? We're not going to have a show of hands. I'm going to assume that most of you have not murdered anybody in your life. But Christ says if you hate them in your heart, and we're definitely not going to have a show of hands on that one. The law says thou shalt not commit adultery. Hmm. I say, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So all of a sudden, what was the simple Ten Commandments, oh yeah, I've done that, becomes a condition of the heart, and we know our heart, and we can't do it. And the righteous requirement of the law is, here's the law, do it or else. Now, we've discussed this before, but I just want to remind us, Why couldn't God just say, well, forget that law. I'm going to save you anyway. You know, it's like, okay, I know I told my child, don't do this, and they did it. But what the heck? You know, it wasn't that big a deal. Come on. Why doesn't God just put on his blinders and say, you broke the law, I don't care? Because he's just. Because the law is the reflection of the righteous character of God, and God cannot deny his character. The law has to be fulfilled. The law says, break the law and you die. And Christ, who did not break the law, died so that we could be saved. The requirement of the law was met. Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to get rid of the law. I have come to fulfill it. 
The law says, do this and die. We did this. We deserve death. And Christ comes and says, here's my righteousness. And we saw that in chapter 3, where we talked about Christ's righteousness being given to us. Yes? Yes. You pick a category. His comment was, when we talk about the law, what are we talking about? And we discussed this before. You know, we can say, okay, there's the Ten Commandments. That's the law in a nutshell. You know, stone tablets brought down, that's the law. To a good Jewish person, it would have been much broader than that. There's the dietary laws. There are the laws on how they're to run their country, about who they can have sex with, who they can marry, etc., etc. There's a broader context. If you look at chapter, what is it, 2, we saw that the law was written on our hearts. So there is the conscience that says, don't do this. That, too, is the law. And as we said earlier, in one sense, I don't care which of those lists you pick. You blew it. Okay? In reality, there is no conflict between those lists. We know that the dietary laws, we know that the laws about the priest, we know that the laws about the sacrifices were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They weren't gotten rid of, they were fulfilled. So we no longer offer the blood of animals. Why do we not do that? Because Christ was the final sacrifice. We no longer dress up and put on the robe of the priest. Why? Because Christ is our great high priest. And on top of that, we have this verse that alludes to the fact that we are all priests. Why? Because we can all enter the presence of God. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God living in us. So, to answer your question, yes. Okay? We'll start with the written law. We'll make it broader and we'll talk about the law written on our heart. Whatever it is, all it does is condemn us because we, in our own power, cannot keep it. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Wait a minute, in us? I could understand in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ kept it from the day he was born to the day he died, and then he was resurrected to show that he had fulfilled it. Why doesn't it say in Christ? Because we receive Christ's righteousness. Huh. Back to chapter 6, on to chapter 7. Remember this discussion. We are in Christ. We were in sin, now we are in Christ. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. And we are dead to sin. Remember the illustration from last week's lesson? A woman is married. She goes marry somebody else, and she is an adulteress. Why? Because the law says that's wrong. But if her husband dies, she is free to remarry because she is no longer bound to that law because the husband is dead. We died to sin. We, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the righteousness of Christ given to us, we are fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Now, 
Don't fall into the trap. You're going to fall into the trap and think, I did that. No, you didn't. The righteousness of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of Christ. But didn't I do it? No, you didn't. But just that. No, you didn't. The righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit empowers us to live the life that God would have us to live. What does that life look like? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here are the two paths, in the flesh and in the spirit. Pick one. How do we know which path we're on? Where is our mind set? Now, it is interesting because at this point we could jump ahead, but it would be cheating to chapter 12, where it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be you transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And when we get there, we're going to talk about how we renew our minds, how we turn from being conformed to this world by, to being transformed by the renewing of your mind. This passage here is just talking about the reality. Either my mind is over here, or it's over here. And no, I didn't pick this side for the unrighteous. Just, it just <laughs> happened that way. Okay? Question. Question. Set your mind on the things of the flesh, or set your minds on the things of the spirit. What do those two things look like? Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Starting in verse, say, 18. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and here they come. You ready for this? Romans chapter 8, if you have your mind set on the things of the flesh, it'll lead to death. What are those things? Here is the list. Okay? I actually thought of, you know, putting out a test, one to five, how are you on each of these? But that would be embarrassing. Here it comes. Now the works of the flesh are evident. I like that word. They're very clear. Now, are they very clear to the person who's captivated by them? Not necessarily. Are they very evident to society? Maybe. Are they very evident to God? Real clear. Here it comes. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
You know, I've often wanted to have a whole lesson where I go through all of these, you know, give a definition of each, give examples of each, put up pictures, I don't know, (laughs) of famous people who do these things. But I've never done that. Why? Because we don't like these kinds of lists. You know, we look at this list and we go, okay, sorcery. To the best of my knowledge, I've never practiced sorcery. I'm good to go. Rah, rah. We look at these lists and we find the ones that I have not personally broken today. And we think somehow I'm a pretty good guy. Instead of looking at the ones that, oops, there was yesterday and I was angry at, uh, no, rivalry? Hmm. Dissensions, divisions? Huh. What is a division? And no, it's not an inverse multiplication problem. What is a division? Discord. You wouldn't ever do that, would you? You wouldn't ever have a good Christian community of people and you're sitting there with your best buddy going, you know, I didn't like what that person did. They treated me wrong. They're bad. They're, I, I, mm. The scripture is actually very clear. If you have a problem with somebody, you go to that person. You don't talk about them behind their back. Why? Because that produces Divisions. Huh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Anybody watch TV? Hmm. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. We think of idolatry as I've got this little statue in front of me and every morning I bow down before it on my way out the door. No. Idolatry is when you put something above God. Huh. These are the things of the flesh. The mind of the flesh is focused on the things of the flesh and here's the list. Sorcery. Okay, we're off the hook. Any sorcerers in here? We're not going to get into a discussion of Harry Potter. Okay. I will let you know that I finally did break down last year and read Harry Potter after my kids badgered me about it. My 13-year-old, I finally gave her permission to read them, and she read them in 13 days. 4,000 pages in This is not what I'm talking about. What is sorcery? Sorcery is attempting to use demonic powers to influence a person, events. Huh. We wouldn't use demonic powers. We wouldn't use the tools of the flesh to further our agenda. We wouldn't do a thing like that, would we? You know, we have visions of people in robes with pointed hats and wands. No, it's using the tools of the devil to accomplish our own purposes. We wouldn't do that. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. You could throw all those together. 
I haven't really checked. That is the uh, NIV version up there, and this is the ESV. So if the words are a little bit different, and I'm sure they're different in the King James, right? <laughs> Enmity, strife, jealousy. Any of you been jealous in the last, this morning driving to church? <laughs> you know? We all struggle with these things. If we didn't struggle with them, we wouldn't have had chapter 7 of the book of Romans. We oftentimes think that the bad sins are what those people do. The bad sins are what reside in the sinful heart that resides in all of us. The question of Romans chapter 8, actually it's not even a question, it's an observation. You set your mind on these, or you set your mind on those, and that determines the course of your life. So we won't be totally depressed. Let's keep reading. To the more famous part of the chapter. But the fruit... Verse 22, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Question. You wake up in the morning and your mind is focused on something. I know what mine is, and I'm not going to tell it to you. (laughs) The problems I'm going to have at work, the problems I'm having at home, the difficulties my kids are having. With my number of kids, you're always having some difficulty somewhere. I mean, even, even in the best of circumstances, right? What about this? What about that? What about the other? What are we to focus our minds on? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It is interesting the way that this is labeled. Verse 19, the works of the flesh. These are the things that the flesh does. But the fruit of the Spirit is not fruits are the fruit of the spirit is what is fruit it's stuff that grows out of the tree what is the tree jesus talked about this didn't he i'm the right well, go ahead you are the branches if you abide in me then you'll bear fruit what is the fruit love joy peace patience kindness gentleness, and self-control. Did I leave goodness out? I left goodness out. Faithfulness. I never can get them all right. Now, we have had lessons on these because we like this list. Back to Romans chapter 8. 
For those who live according to the flesh, this is not a, at this point, a go do this. This is just an acknowledgement. There are those who live according to the flesh, and he's going to say in the next section, and that's not you. Okay? There are those who live according to the flesh, and this is what they do. They live according to the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what they think about. Okay? We are not health, wealth, prosperity, you know, change your mind, change the world, reality is configured. We're not that kind of people. But God has given us a mind, and our mind is to be focused on the things of God. That's just the reality. The mind will demonstrate where our life is really pointed For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Okay, I'm not going to forget another one again. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Not might be, not could be, but is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. This is the discussion we had in chapter 6. You, you can pick the path. You can't pick the conclusion of the path. I can live a life of the flesh, and it will end up in death. You can pick the life of the spirit, and it will end up in life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Let's stop right there. Remember our discussion at the beginning? We all want to think, even as unbelievers, that we're pretty nice people. I mean, let's face it. We're nice 21st century Americans. We are good people. We do not kick our children. We do not kick the cat. Well, maybe sometime. We do, we're nice people, okay? Aren't we? Couldn't we be? And it is simple as this. God is the sovereign of the universe. Not ought to be, not should be, not could he be in your life if you let him. God is the sovereign of the universe. The universe is not a democracy. It is a king and God is the king. End of story. If you live in the kingdom and refuse to acknowledge the king and his rightful authority, what does that make you? It makes you hostile to God. I mean, that's it. You can love your kids as well as your Christian neighbor. You can be interested in civic issues as well as your Christian neighbor. But if you are hostile to God, by refusing to acknowledge his authority, then you are living the path of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. How do we know that? For it does not submit to God's law. Now look at the difference that we're dealing with here. Up to this point in the book, 
We've been acknowledging that we, as sinful human beings, can't follow the law of God. Okay? In my flesh, in my unregenerated life, I cannot follow the law of God. Okay? I come to the crossroad, there's sin, there's good, I like this one, I'll go that direction. This takes it even further. It isn't just that I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to submit to the law of God. If there is a problem, and there's lots of problems, if there is a problem in modern society is that we hate the idea of submission, be it to a human being or be it to God. We like the country western songs about shaking our fist at God and telling God which way is right. We love uh, to hear Frank Sinatra sing, I did it my way. All that is great. I live my life according to my principles, my way, me, mine. And you know what? It may have looked good on the outside world. It would be like if I decided that from henceforth forever, I am going to drive 50 miles an hour. And you know, I get out here on, uh, or 70 miles an hour. I get out here on I-30 and for, I'm kind of close to being the right answer. So I'm submitting, right? No. Because I picked an answer. I get on the street out here and it's 30 and I'm going 70. Why? Because I chose. Sometimes it may look right. I may be on the highway on I-20 and the speed limit is now 70. I was on Central Expressway yesterday and the speed limit is 70. I don't know why. You can't possibly go 70 on Central <laughs> Expressway. There's too many cars. But I'm not submitting to the law. I'm doing what I want to do. And sometimes I fulfill the law and sometimes I don't. But even when I do, I'm not. Because I'm not submitting. The mind set on the flesh cannot follow the law because it refuses to submit to it. Huh. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Remember my favorite verse? Hebrews 11:6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must do two things. They must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. Huh. The mind set on the flesh, will not, cannot, please God. We're going to have a long discussion when we get to chapter 13 about whatever is not done in faith is sin. And we'll have a long discussion about that. But as we see in Hebrews, faith is a prerequisite for pleasing God. Those who have the mind set on the flesh can't do that. But that's all the bad news. Here it comes. You, however, 
He was talking in this nice generic sense. Now he turns to the church that is at Rome. He turns to believers everywhere at all times throughout all of history. And he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Here it comes. Here's the good stuff. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Our bodies are still dying. Why? Because they're fleshly. They're of this world. Our bodies are still dying. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. But wait a minute. Even our mortal bodies will be made alive. Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected with a resurrected body. We will die, we will be buried, we will be raised with a resurrected body. And no, don't ask me what that's going to look like. Okay? Is it you at your prime? Is it you? No, I'm not going to ask, okay? I do know that when Christ was resurrected, he still had the scars because he told Thomas here. Why? Because those scars brought glory to God. Think about that. Hmm. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here it comes. How do we know that we are in Christ? That was chapter 6, chapter 7. You are in Christ, buried with him, raised with him. You are in Christ, dead to sin, alive to God. You are in Christ. What does that mean? It means the Spirit of God lives in you. It is interesting if you look at this passage. I mean, just pick verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Let's think about this for a moment. The Spirit... That's the Holy Spirit of him who raised Jesus. That would be God the Father raised Jesus, who is God. Right here we have the Trinity in one verse. The Trinity is one of those Christian doctrines that is exceptionally difficult to explain to people. I can give you the definition and I can talk to you about how the Bible supports that definition. But to a lot of people, it's odd, okay? If you are a good Muslim, you believe that Christians worship three gods. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity simply states that there is one God in three persons, okay? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, They communicate with each other. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Let us, us, plural, make man in our, our, plural, image. And they created you and me. They communicate with each other. They sometimes subordinate one to the other. But they are all God. And at this point, you can read church history... 
and find lists of heresies where people have taken this doctrine and stretched it just a little bit too much one way or just a little bit too much the other way. You know, there was a time when God the Son didn't exist. He was born. No, he didn't. He has always existed. The scripture says he's always existed. He created the world, John chapter 1. Hmm, that's weird. What does it mean that he was begotten? Interesting discussion. There are those who believe that at one point in time there was God the Father. And then at another point in time there was God the Son. And then, no, they were always there, always existed. But here's the key to this passage. All of them are at work in you. This is the good part of the book. We sometimes get wrapped around chapter 7. The good part of the book is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we ought to do. Now, we started reading in verse 9, and we read about the Holy Spirit. There's lots more to say about the Holy Spirit, and we are out of time. So... Next week, we will pick up again in chapter 9, I mean, on, and on chapter 8, verse 9, and read it again. And we'll spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we have no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, by focusing on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.